Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins, and I'm in Hammersmith with my colleagues Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Martin Collier. And Jasper Morrison Bowie. Hello, Barney. And joining us for this episode in person is music industry legend Rob Dickens. Welcome, Rob. Hello, Barney. (laughs) (laughs) In the 27 years that Rob worked for Warner Brothers here in the UK, he signed and shaped the careers of some of the biggest stars in the history of pop music, including Prince, Madonna, Cher, Enya... Rod Stewart, many more. We'll be talking about some, if not all of those, artists. And we'll be listening to clips from an audio interview with the late, great Leon Russell. First, Rob, let's go back to the beginning of your of your pop life to, to cite the Prince song. Because you were sort of embedded in the music business in, in many ways, weren't you? Yeah, I, it's all I've ever known, basically. My, my father, who... In the after the war and into the early fifties, worked on layout and printing at the Melody Maker. And in 1952, a guy called Morris Kin bought the Accordion Times and Music Express, <laughs> and wanted to sort of do a rival paper to Melody Maker. And he hired Dad to do the advertising, the layout, the printing, all the kind of technical stuff. And so from 1952, so before I, my memory starts, there was an enemy in the house. <laughs> and when I was at school, of course, it was... I got the enemy the day before it hit the newsstand. Mm-hmm. So through the 60s, in my teenage years, you know, Rob had... So I became like a leader of the music <laughs> people <laughs> at school because I had the enemy. So, yes, it's, 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 it goes right back to then. And also, Dad did the Poliners concert. So he was the kind of active runner of the pole in his concert. So I met the Beatles and the Stones when I was 12. I remember being in the corridor backstage at Wembley with my dad, and, and I was in my school uniform. And uh, he said, oh, boys, boys, come say hello to my son. And it was the Beatles. So <laughs> I go back to 1962 to meet the Beatles. So constantly there was that. The other thing he did is, you know, as I was growing up, the review singles, so, it, you know, when they reviewed the singles every week, they would just leave them in the office, so he'd gather them up. And mm-hmm. we're talking probably 12 records a week came out in those days. Yeah. So he'd come back with a briefcase and just empty them on the table, and my brother and I would sort of... Divvy them up. Divvy them yeah, up. <laughs> so, we, so we had A-labels, you know, we had yeah. A-labels, again, before they were in the shop. So we had, I remember, you know, when Please Please Me came in, mm-hmm. but so it was before... And in those days, radio didn't play up front of release. So, you know, we, we were hearing every new record before it actually hit the shops. So, and then as I got older and I, I read about Bob Dylan, I was 13, and I said, oh, I'd love Free Wheeling by Bob Dylan. So, you know, he just rang up his friend at CBS and <laughs> came home with Free Wheeling. So, you know, I, I had a kind of free access to albums as well as singles. So you were wow. you were you were like in the market for freebies long before the first before I journalists knew, before, came I, before I knew what freebie meant. <laughs> yeah, it was it was just my method of attaining music. Yeah. Did you yeah. ever consider another career? Yeah, I. Well, my mother, because you know, I'm, I'm sure we got to my brother, but my brother was my father was music business. My brother was music business, and it's all encompassing. You know, you have no life. Mm. You commit to the music business. And I went to university and I studied politics and Russian 
and she thought, well, at least, you know, the, the, the first <laughs> boy in the, the first family member of Dickens going to university, at least he won't be in the music business. <laughs> <laughs> but, but at university, I was, I was social secretary for two years, chairman of events, chairman of the folk club, chairman of the jazz club, chairman of the film society. Yeah, nothing to do with music at all. I kind of, and I had my, you know, the, the president of the student union had an office. And I had an office with a red telephone, which, in, you know, in 1969 was quite something. <laughs> and I used to, you know, I had this office with all posters up and, you know, stuff. So I kind of spent most of my time in that office. Which university was this? Loughborough. Which, of course, was a, lot of, a lot of gigs were put on Loughborough. A, I, well, you yeah. must have promoted a lot of those. I, well, I did Pink Floyd. I did Faces, Motley Who, Paul Free. Earth. Earth. I did Earth, yeah. <laughs> Earth. Yeah. Later, Black Sabbath. Is that right? But it was a Wednesday night, and they were still called Earth. Gosh, you've, <laughs> you've done your Earth. research. Yeah. <laughs> we're Earth. They, they were managed by someone in Birmingham, and he kind of kept ringing us up because when you had the red phone, you got phone calls from managers and agents. You know, trying to put because it was <laughs> the hall held, I think, about eighteen hundred people. Wow. So um, that was a proper gig. On yeah, the I'm, I'm, I'm oh, yeah, no, yeah, it was, it was, a, really, it was a gig. I'm, I'm as a melody maker reader in the late sixties. Loughborough's one of those regular big student venues. You know, yeah, yeah. yeah that you'd and we had of. and Chris Briggs was at Leicester University, so we had this like eighteen mile clause. So if you played Loughborough, you couldn't play Leicester within, <laughs> I think, six months or a year. So it was like you know because I remember he got the Who. And I, so I couldn't get the Who because he had the same thing back to us. So. Even your brother, though, though your brother had signed the Who. And yeah, but my brother was 17, 18. My, <laughs> my, my dad always said about my brother, he's like, if he signed you, once you fire him, you're going to be famous because the Who, <laughs> you know, he did Maximar and all that stuff. Yeah. He did the transition from high numbers. So by the time you got to the Who selling lots of records... Yeah. They fired him because he was like a teenager. He didn't he couldn't <laughs> do a tour of America. He couldn't do you know couldn't yeah, do anything yeah. like that. And then cool. Jimi Hendrix fired him after the first. You know, when, once he'd done Monterey, you know, he saw the world as being bigger than what a nineteen-year-old agent could do. Yeah, yeah. So you know, my dad's thing was always Barry signs you're going to be famous when you fire him. <laughs> Our last guest was at Monterey and found the Who so sort of overwhelmingly noisy and violent she she hid under the stage because she she thought something <laughs> terrible was going to ellen sander <laughs> well i mean the great thing about the who at the marquee because we used to go in the back so i'd come from school put my blazer in my duffel bag meet barry at the office in wardour street and then we go into the back of the in the back door of the who you know roger would be kind of head of a screwdriver in his microphone and you know they they, they were doing their own tech <laughs> and Pete used to break probably three Rickenbackers a show. They weren't earning any money. Just the three. And <laughs> so after sound check, we all went to the pub, and because I was 15, everyone was standing outside the pub, so it was the ship and the intrepid fox. And, and because they didn't like each other, you'd actually be with, you know, Roger and John at one and Pete and Keith at the other. <laughs> But, you know, we used to hang out with them before the gig. And into, and I remember Kit Lambert saying, Peter, could you not break quite so many guitars tonight? Um, you know, we're really losing money on this. And, uh, and then Pete broke three guitars that night. 
has he not said anything? He's probably broken one. But it was, it's. I mean, I saw the Who right through their career, and those marquee days were just so superior. I bet because it became pantomime. Yeah, quite quickly. You know, when he had faux amplifiers and things. Yes. You know, when he smashed an amplifier and a guitar, they were real. Yeah. And on stage, so. You are getting an extraordinary insight into the business from management, putting on gigs, all of those things. I mean, is that why you're so successful as a record man? I, I there's, you know, I teach as well as loving the music. I, I teach A and R at Berkeley College of Music. I'm a guest lecturer there, and I have been for eight years. And before that, I taught, you know, University of the Arts and London Metropolitan. All I ever wanted to be was either a record producer or an A and R man. I loved records. I loved the whole recording process. Huge fan of the Beach Boys, you know, that period and what the Beatles were doing. So I loved production. And we went to see the Birds, I think, in 1965 or 66 at the Lyceum. And all my friends went, they they were so terrible that night. Mm. They said, God, they're dreadful, you know, forget the Birds. And I went, why? (laughs) They said they were terrible. And I went, so what? They make brilliant records. Yeah, yeah. And I would say at that point, you know, looking back, that was the key point when it wasn't about the live acts. And also I'd seen the best live acts I was ever going to see. <laughs> it was really about the recording process. Yeah. So that's what I wanted to be. But I happened to be good at business and money and negotiation. And so, and also when I went into the record business, I thought to run a record company... I was looking at Chris Blackwell, right. Simon Draper, Armit Ertigan. They all made records. Yeah, yeah. And so you thought, well, to be a successful head of a record company, which, you know, is in the back of your head is maybe, if I make some great records, mm-hmm. I can run a record company. I didn't realise, you know, that you had to do all the other stuff, but as I did it, when I was, I first started in publishing, in the first week I said to the, you know, the head of business affairs, give me a few contracts. And I took them home and I read them and I came back and asked questions. So I I understood contracts from age 21. So it was that thing of... The the round, the the whole... But, but, you know, A&R talent falls on very different people in different ways. I mean, everybody, everybody thinks they know what a hit record is. Very few people have the chance of hearing it in its raw state, whether that's live or a demo. Mm -hmm. But everyone thinks they know a hit, but, you know, as I always say, only some of us are right. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, a friend of mine from university days said, your job's easy. He said, when I hear a record on the radio, I know whether it's going to be a hit or not. I said, before it gets on the radio, there's an awful lot of filters that's already gone through. Yes, yes. But it's that thing of being able to see something in very, very raw material. Mm -hmm. And so how do you teach A&R then? Well, I start with saying I can't, I, I can't yeah. teach you A&R. It's a, <laughs> it's a gift. A&R is a gift that is bestowed on people. It's a bit like voices. Mm. You know, voices, are, you, you, yeah. Rod Stewart has a voice. A Scottish person born in Crouch End has a voice, you know, like Sam Cooke. Yes. You know, why? Paul Carrick has a voice. 
you know, you have all these different things. Yeah, yeah. But mm-hmm. who's it's bestowed on are all different people, Joe Cocker. You know, it's, you don't automatically you know, look like you're going to get it. Van Morrison. Yeah. And A&R is the same as a gifted pianist mm. or something like that. You just have that, that, that sixth sense of this is special. Mm. Yes. And so I, I tell them I can't teach that. But if you've got it, I can teach you how to use it. If you haven't got it, I can teach you to have a career. <laughs> so that's that's how we do. It. But we analyze songs, mm. we analyze productions, you know, and, and I tell stories because you know I've made so many records. Yeah, uh, you know, I've executive produced, which is kind of like A and Ring. You know, Enya's hits and shares and Rod Stewart's and you know quite a few people on the cause. So I've got involved in, so I can actually teach. By example, saying this is how we did believe by share, yes. as opposed to the other teachers there, kind of teaching theory. Yeah. So I, I, you know, I teach the theory, and then I give them a personal example, and I say to them, "Have we got time for a story?" And they all go, "Yes." <laughs> <laughs> so I just do stories. Um, let the other people do all the boring stuff. Very good, very good. When did you first join Warner's? What year did you? First time, September the 20th, 71. <laughs> I love the September the 20th. <laughs> well, that's a big day in yeah. your life. So, run. before that, you were in publishing. Were you in publishing? No, no, that, that was, was, not, that was, that was yes. publishing. Right. Which I didn't know. I mean, when I finished university, you know, when you're waiting for your, your, yeah, yeah. your grades, I thought, what do I want to do? And I thought, I either want to be a writer, mm-hmm. I want to be in the music business, the film business, or the magazine business. Right. So I wrote letters to all the magazine, IPC and all these magazine places. I wrote letters to all the film companies. I wrote letters to all the record companies saying, uh-huh. you know, I've done this and I was social sick and da, da, da. And I got no replies from the film companies at all. Mm-hmm. I got a reply from Polydor to be a salesman in Birmingham. Right. And I kind of thought, you know... <laughs> That's hardly going to be a career starter, <laughs> is it? So I kind of turned that down. I got a refusal from Kinney, which was... The parent company. The, the precursor of, of WEA. Yes. Yeah. So I got a refusal from that, which I've kept. I have that letter <laughs> saying, I'm sorry, we don't have anything for you. And I got an interview at IPC for Honey Petticoat and 19 mm-hmm. as a writer. Yeah, yeah. So... I went to work there for about eight days, mm-hmm. and I, you know my stories were. You know, it's very hard because you had to write down. Yeah, yeah. You know, for like for teenage audience. girls yeah, on yeah. the tube. That's kind of from the audience for Honey and Nineteen. So I, I wrote articles on keeping a big dog, <laughs> Rast- <laughs> Rastafarianism, and what was the other one? It was something. They, they were kind of nonsense things. I, well, you know, the Rasta thing was. Was of the time, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, you know, I sketched those out, and then, and I noticed that everyone was a woman. You know, the editor was a woman, yeah, the yeah. assistant editor was, and the features writers were all women. And I kind of thought, this is a woman's world. A man's not going to work. This is seventy-one. Yes, a man's not going to be able to work in this area. And then I got this thing from Warner Brothers Music, the publishing company, yeah, yeah. saying we've got a job opening. Would you like to come for an interview? So I, you know, went home and I said to my dad, you know, what's publishing? <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea what this is. Yeah, yeah. So he explained it to me, 
and I went for the interview, and they just got the Bob Dylan catalogue. Ah. And then the, the boss who was interviewing me said, we've just got the Bob Dylan catalogue from, you know, Leeds Music. And they've not sent us any titles, just first lines. And, he, and so I said, oh, show me the first lines. And I said, well, that's this, that's this. <laughs> and, he, and then he hired me. Yeah. <laughs> so, Fantastic. Um, so, around Bob so Dylan's was, so titles. Yes, Brilliant. I started. But in those days, Kinney Warner's was so small. We were right. in the same office building. Right. And then on my first day at work, the promotion guys at the record company, one of them was ill and one of them was away on holiday. Mm -hmm. So they sent me straight down to the record company as a promotion man who'd never promoted anything <laughs> um, record-wise. Yeah. So I was suddenly there and, yeah, my first day, right, my first day I was kind of really nervous because yes, I got sure. to work for the first time. And I said to my, I said to my daddy, you know, I just hope I can do this. And he said, you know, most people in the music business are stupid, so you're not, so you'll do well. And I thought, <laughs> I just thought, that's a dad to a son on his first day at work. Yeah. So I go to work, they send me down, and within an hour I'm in a promotion meeting. Mm -hmm. And there's like probably 15 people in this meeting, uh, artist relations, everyone's in this meeting. And they get to Riders on the Storm. Right. Just gone in the charts. So the head of promotion, just remain nameless, said, um, <laughs> said, okay, the door's in at number 20. We're going to fly them in. We're going to do top of the pops. We're going to do interviews. <laughs> and, da, da, da. and I thought, no, Rob, you've been in the music business for an hour and a half. Yeah. <laughs> Shut up. And he carries on, carries on. And I just thought, this is so ridiculous. That Shut up. And everyone, looking at everyone's face and they're all listening. And, I, and then I went, um... Um, Des, sorry. Um, <laughs> Cats out the bag. Yeah. yeah. Um, the reason they gone in the charts is, is Jim Morrison died. Oh, for God's and, sake. And he went, oh, shit, and hit his forehead. And, and I thought, Dad... He's right. right. <laughs> <laughs> I always thought if I ever wrote a book, the first chapter would be called Dad, Dad you're, you're right. right. <laughs> That's fantastic. And then in the first week, we went to pick up the doors. They still brought them in. Yeah, yeah. And they said, you want to come? It's on a bus. We're going to take a bus to Heathrow. So we took the, a London bus to Heathrow to pick them up. Because <laughs> these are the it's days you, you yeah, had to do yeah. stuff like that. <laughs> and it broke down just around about Chiswick <laughs> House. And there's a wonderful photograph of me and Derek Taylor sitting on a bus with the doors looking fed up. <laughs> that, was, that was my first week at work. That's fantastic. <laughs> so when people go about on the doors, the doors, I get this picture out and go, yeah, that's me and the doors. When you started at Warner's, what did the label mean to you? What did Warner Reprise mean to you as a fan? Well, a lot of the records I'd played, you know, that I'd listened to, I'd asked for, were Warner Reprise. I mean, I remember having, going right back to Warner Brothers, of Kathy's Clown by the yeah. Emily Brothers, and I remember the, the red label with the arrows on it. But all through, like, Van Morrison, Joni Mitchell... So it, it was a it was a label, mostly well only from American acts, and I was heavily into American acts. So 
it was a label that I knew pretty well. And I was amazed when I took out, you know, when I took over the record label, is that they lost money from inception until I took over. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they'd had the Eagles' greatest hits and Fleetwood Mac rumours and still, still they managed a, to lose money. Seriously? Yeah. Wow. That is very hard. They never, believe. ever... Gosh. They never made money. And that was, you know, the business thing. In six months, we'd turned a profit. Mm. And, in the, you know, when I left, we were, I think... Per the size of our releases to our profits it's not they weren't the highest profits because companies were much bigger but we were the we were the best percentage profit to turnover but that's just something i always i always uh, david geffen said to me once he said you know i'm in the david geffen business the trouble with you <laughs> is you're in the warner business and because i used to run it as if i owned it so when i could you know by the time i was chairman I could have a suite in a hotel and travel first class. I still travel first class. But I had a room because I just slept in it. I didn't do business or anything else. And I remember one of my staff who was travelling with me who had a suite. And I said, why do you need a suite? He said, well, because I can. And I just went, well, I can't do that. And I, so I did actually run it as if I... So I paid attention to lots of things. Waiting times on cabs... <laughs> you know yeah. I suddenly went no we're not paying yeah, yeah. time on cabs yeah yeah mm. keeping um, on the bottom line basically yeah, I mean, well, yes. yeah and it was because you know it hurt if we lost any money over anything yeah. sure and that was a very incredibly indulgent time of the music business as well waiting time on cabs sounds kind of mean but basically people in press and A&R yeah. and marketing we're ordering a cab for like twelve thirty and getting in it at one thirty, right? Yeah. To go to a lunch, which then was an expense. Yeah, and it was just trying to think. You can have the cab, but you can't have an hour. Well, nine times out of ten, they could probably just walk around the corner to have lunch. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you! And then I can speak for Mark and Martin when I say that those labels, Warner and Reprise, were were really important to us. Yes, mm. so many of the artists that that we worshipped. So. You know, we're, we're doing a kind of Warner Priest special to coincide with you being on right, the podcast. Okay. And, you know, I mean, when you think about Matt Morrison, Joe, you think about Little Feet. Well, for me, it's, it's Live Dead. Live Dead, well, of course, that for you, Grateful Dead. I mean, yeah, I bought that yeah. when it came, just after it came out. Yeah. And that was probably the first record I owned which had the Warner Brothers logo on the, on the label. I just loved that record. Yes. And, and it was Gosh. mysterious as American, it was... Yeah. So far away and kind yeah. of strange. It's so know. bloody awful. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on, it's the second time. Gary Kent gives me a hard time. That's your lot, mate, as a deadhead. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I with, with the exception of maybe Uncle John's band. Mm. And we don't have time allegory. for a debate about yeah. that. Relative merits. I tell you a, a quick story there. <laughs> is that there was this really attractive girl and I asked her out and I had Grateful Dead tickets because I was at Warner's and she was a huge Grateful Dead so we had these great tickets and I was, I was caught and I was really keen I was really keen on this girl and we got there and three hours no two and a half hours into the gig I, I, I said I, I can't <laughs> I can't stand this anymore I can't take any more of this it's so <laughs> dreary and she said it's brilliant it's brilliant so I said well I'm going to go and she said well, I'm going to stay, and that was it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That, yeah. that Mark, have any of your relationships collapsed? No, no, I never pushed them that far. <laughs> 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 it, they played for five hours that night, and I just thought, God, I 
two hours of my life I got back. <laughs> <laughs> Martin, yeah. I mean, what, what, when you think about War Reprise, are there other specific albums or moments or I th- gigs? Yes, there were... About? Well, certainly the, after the Gold Rush, that, that entire kind of era of, mm. of music, partly because it, it felt... I don't know, I think American music at that point was, was incredibly seductive. Yeah. To, I mean, yeah. you know, I'd, I'd grown up with jazz musicians and skiffle and all of those things and the warners had seemed to have some connection to black music and they had a connection to a kind of intelligent end of uh, certainly you know 69 to 74 or kind of little feet that whole thing it was all there was a it was one of those times where if it was a Warns you could trust it. You could you could buy it and not be worried. I mean, you didn't like everything, but, no, but there yeah. was enough. You know, that was always a good guide. Yes, I had that with Electra Records. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I bought Electra Records because they were. I had Paul Seaball, you know, The Doors, Rhinoceros. Yeah. I remember the first time I met Jack Holtzman. I said I used to buy Electra Records just because it was on Electra, until one record, and then I went, "That's it, it's over. <laughs> <laughs> I'm never going to buy Electra Records without hearing it." And, and as Jack said, well, what was that? I said, the Whackers. <laughs> you know the Whackers? No, 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 We've got a couple of pieces of the Whackers. <laughs> Have we? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, can you describe what they sound like? Were they like a power? Were they sort of power? No, they, they were meant they? to be, hence the name. They were meant to be Beatlesque. Be- yeah, Beatlesque. But they were actually monkey-esque. <laughs> oh, <okay>. without, without the songs. <laughs> <laughs> so, if you imagine... Without a terrible songwriter writing songs for the monkeys, you've kind of got the whackers. And I was so personally offended <laughs> that I'd paid this money. I bought it from Imhoff's in Tottenham yes. Road. Yeah. Which was the first act you personally signed as an A&R man? My first signing in publishing was Johnny Bristol. Oh, right, yeah. Hang on in there, baby. Hang on in there, baby, yeah. Hang on in there, baby, went to number two. Mm -hmm. And again, Warner Brothers Music was the number 11 publisher. Mm -hmm. And within two years, we were number one. Wow. But that was the first one I signed. But the, the great thing about Johnny Bristol is he had a lawyer called Lee Phillips. And Lee Phillips was Joni Mitchell, Neil Young. And when I took over the publishing company, it was, it was a week before my 24th birthday. Mm-hmm. So I was 24, and all the American lawyers took away all their acts because they went, there's a kid running a company, we're going to go to a proper oh, right. publishing company, except for Lee Phillips. So he kept Joni and Neil with me, and he said, you know, I've got this new artist, Johnny Bristol. So signed Johnny Bristol, and that was a hit. And I was in America... And he said, I've got this new kid and we're going to sign to Warner Brothers Records. You know, do you want to hear some demos? Mm. And it was Prince. So when he was 17, wow. he played me Prince demos. <laughs> that became his first album. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I went, I love this. Yeah. So I signed Prince, like, on the spot as Warners were still negotiating. So we had Prince at the same time yes. as the record company. Wow. Then I watched the record company fail to break him. Right, right. Which is when we do, you know, when we when I took over, and it was Purple Rain, and we broke When Doves Cry, and the next the follow up was Let's Go Crazy, and I went, no, no, not in England. Mm-hmm. 
1999. Yes. Backed with little red Corvette. And they went, what are you talking about? I said, I want to prove a point. They were always hit records. Yeah. And I've got to know that I can make them hit records. Right. And so that was a double A side. I think went to number two. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. 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 And that, but only existed in the UK. Is it because... I, I mean, I did the same the same thing with Madonna. We put out uh, "Get Into the Groove," which is the only place it came out as an A side was in the UK. Yeah, because the I think it was Angel was the record they told us to play. So it's actually it's a hit. Hit. He, she was a hit here before she was a hit in America. Is that right? Well, they sent her. The, they said, you know, England's got no music, just image, and we've got an artist that is just image, mm-hmm. and she's a disco singer. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to send them send her to England because we don't know what to do with her. And I remember a very high-ranking executive at Warner Brothers America said, I just wish we had Cindy Lauper. Mm-hmm. You know, and he said, no, but you see what you can do with Madonna. So she kind of lived in the press office in the UK. Yeah, yeah. I, I have a good Madonna story at the beginning. <laughs> we took her out for dinner, and this is... She'd had a single just before I got there called Everybody, which stiffed. Mm-hmm. And she was signed on a 12-inch deal by Seymour Stein for Sire. And then they changed that into an album deal a bit later on. And so we took her out to dinner and a couple of things happened. Uh, That day she had a press thing from The Face, The Daily Express, all this stuff she had to do. And she didn't show up for it. Mm -hmm. And apparently, what verb can I use? She was partying... With Rankin Roger of the Beat, who she'd met the night before, right. <laughs> until you know, right the way through the press day, and uh, <laughs> and then we took her to dinner that night. And I said, "Look, Madonna, you've got to." And it was weird saying the word Madonna mm. back then. Yes, yes. <laughs> you know, <laughs> when you're talking to someone, yes. instead of like you know, hey Barney, it was like, hey Madonna. <laughs> it was strange. <laughs> saying those words yeah yeah but i said to you know that's really we're going out on a limb here these people and she said you know what every unknown does an interview with these people and i didn't and now remember i didn't when i'm the biggest actor in the world and i'm looking at this girl that had one record out that's stiff (laughs) and she's saying when i'm the biggest and i'm rolling my eyes thinking oh my god (laughs) and i look back at it when she was the biggest actor in the world and I think, did she know? <laughs> I mean, I felt that she knew. It was very weird that she always well, knew. What year was this? Um, 83. 83, right. yeah. I was being in a demo studio around 82, 83, and this guy, one of one of John Rocker from Freeze, from Freeze he, was, he was in the studio, he said, have you heard of this woman called Madonna? She can do everything. She can dance, she can sing, she can do the lot. And, I, I, and I've never heard of her. That's the very mm. first time mm. I heard her name mm. mentioned. Mm. And it was really interesting. This this guy was, you know... Just so I, I, I actually interviewed her at, at Warner's when... It may have been the second time she came over. Yeah. And I, I did find her self-belief terrifying, yeah. <laughs> actually. It was. Yeah. Well, I have a theory about... Every artist changes from, you know, before success... They can be the nicest person in the world, but success will change them. Yeah, yeah. One way or another, usually mm-hmm. not for the best, but they become different people. Yeah, and I've sure. seen it so many times. And I always say there's one person that didn't change mm. was Madonna. Yeah. 
And he went, oh, really? And she stayed, I said, she was always a nightmare. <laughs> so when she was the biggest act in the world, she was still a nightmare. Yes. So she's the only one that had a level, you know, everyone no, else yeah, yeah. has a graph getting <laughs> more and more difficult. She that, was difficult from the get-go. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Extraordinary. You were in the music business for a long time. You saw all the various changes. I mean, how did you feel? I mean, say, say going from through the end of the 70s, the 80s and the 90s, how did you sort of feel the music business changed? And did it change for the better or for the worse? Or um, That's a bit metaphysical, really. Sorry. <laughs> I, 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 I do apologise. It, and it changed. Yes. Um, it also depends on what point of view. Mm. Mm. You know, at the moment, the record industry makes more money than it's ever made in its life. Extraordinarily, before. after a period when it was really yeah, yeah when struck, everyone yeah. thought it was over. Yeah, yeah. and those people that you know, like Lem Blavatnik, who made decisions to get involved in it, you know, have payday. So, the record industry, you know, went from making a little bit of money mm -hmm. to making a lot of money mm -hmm. to making even more with mm. CDs. Right, and then. Completely missed the boat with um, downloads. No yeah. downloads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 we've got um, this marvelous interview with Sky Solomon, who ran Tower Records from 1994. Russ, Russ. yeah, Russ, Solomon. and he's saying downloads will never catch on. No one will want to listen to music on their computers, and it's just marvelous reading this now. It's just, and then Tower went bust in 2004. You know, so it was. Yeah, it's. it's I, I was on the, you know, chairman of BPI, so I was on the IFPI. Right. And I remember there was, there was like a, a Sean Fanning meeting about, you know, the devil, this guy. And they were going to sue him here mm, and sue him yeah. there. And I went, I, t I think you're all mad. I think we should be hiring him. Mm. He saw a business, we didn't. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the point. But they were always, they didn't believe in CDs. No. It's like... It's, it's a you know, they really believed in cassettes, which is probably the worst, <laughs> the worst thing that ever happened to the music business. And they all believed in cassettes because they were cheap. Until people started taping their stuff on cassettes, and oh, yeah, then yeah, it became yeah. phone taping yeah. is killing music. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> I was chairman of VPI during that thing, and so, <laughs> and but it was so it's so financially it's had it's up. It's, you know, it got more and more profitable and then yeah. it had a dip and then it came back more profitable than ever for the big labels mm. because basically they're turning over a billion songs you know one label universal i think has a billion songs are selling every single day now minuscule yes. amounts yeah. of money yeah, but. but selling every hour of every day in every country it wasn't let's wait for the record store to open yeah yeah and it's like so every minute there's someone downloading streaming something so the profits with no A and R, no marketing, right. uh, are no, astronomical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and a load of your catalogue with no upfront cost to it. So you can look at it that way, and then you look at it the artist way. Yeah, and you see, and you know, when I was buying records or obtaining records, um, <laughs> it was, you know, there was one TV in the house mm. and a, a dance-set record player in mm. your bedroom. And, you know, you either watch TV that your parents decided on or you went to your room and played a record yeah, or you yeah. went to your friend's house and played records. There was no other. So music became everything. Yeah. 
and then bit by bit it's become a strand yes of um, you know a completely multi-dimensional yeah. mm. empire of, of of what you can do with your time yeah, yeah. and you know also music's how you judge people yes. i used to go to girls flats and things when i was sort of dating <laughs> and i'd go straight to the record, record, record collection, collection and yeah. go mm. Not taking her Too many grateful Demerit. Too many grateful Demerit. Julia, what was her name? There was an artist on Virgin called Julia. Oh, I know you mean. Yes, Julia Fordham. Julia Fordham. And if I saw a Julia Fordham, you were out there. I was out there. Oh, 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 if I saw an Otis Redding record, if I saw Otis I, Blue there, I think this is a yeah, keeper. Yeah. This is a keeper. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned Rod Stewart earlier, Rob, and I just wanted to ask you about the story of Downtown Train. Right. Yes. Well, it's, uh, when I when I took over Warner's, the day I took over, the second day of my reign at Warner's as the chair, Baby Jane went to number one. Mm-hmm. Had nothing to do with me. But it was kind of like a sign. They hadn't had a number one in years. And then suddenly there's this number one. And so Rod Stewart was back on it, selling lots of records. And then we had year, you know, year two, year three, year four. And he just made all those, you know, forgettable AOR yeah, yeah. records that sold in America, in Europe, not yeah. just the UK. And people didn't really buy his records anymore. We, I had a meeting with him and his manager saying, you know, what's going on in the UK? Why isn't Rod so, you know, I, I'm slightly Asperger's when it comes to... I can lie about anything, mm-hmm. but I can't lie about music. So if someone's <laughs> asked me a musical question... Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, whether it's, you know, what do you think of the record or whatever. And I said, well, basically, Rod is a good singer of mediocre songs... Yes. ..and a great singer of great songs. Yeah, yeah. And unfortunately, the last couple of albums have been mediocre songs. And... First of all, the manager couldn't believe I just said that. <laughs> and he, and he, with Rod in the room. Mm-hmm. And then Rod said, so you can find me a great song? And I said, in a second. And he said, OK, my house in Epping, Saturday, you know, Saturday lunchtime, you come over and Epping from London is a schlock. <laughs> um, so I tried, so I, 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 I just had an argument with everything that was going because I, I love Tom Waits. I've got some Tom Raitt stories as well. Um, I love Tom Waits. <laughs> and they used to do Downtown Train in the act. Right. And they demoed it. And I said, oh, this is a single. And they went, you don't tell us what singles we can do. <laughs> I said, no, but, you know, it's not like I came up with the idea. You came up with the idea. And they said, well, we're not doing it. So I don't So when I was trying to think of a great song, I thought, Downtown Train, that's a great song. It was right in my front of my brain. And also, I, I, I knew Rod a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, I sort of met him a few times with the faces and stuff, and I knew he had the concentration of a, you know, <laughs> of a rock star, let's put it that way. <laughs> so, so I made a cassette, and I put Downtown Train on it three times. <laughs> and I, I, I went over to the house, and then... His son came down with a boombox mm-hmm. and I slotted in the cassette and I played Downtown Train and I said, don't say anything. And I played it and then it came on again and then I, I said, don't say anything. <laughs> and the third time it played, he went, I love it. I absolutely love it. And his son, who was a teenager at the time, said, 
Dad, why does he sing so bad? <laughs> and I went, that's my point. You know, most people can't stand Tom Waits' singing voice. Sure. I mean, I love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I got why he's not, you know, a huge seller. And I said, so that song, with you singing it, suddenly... So he says, OK, I'll do it. So I rein in Trevor Horn, mm-hmm. and Trevor goes and does a sort of a backing track with Rod doing it. And I'm thinking, oh, this is good. This, is, this could be something. And then I, I'm somewhere out of London. I get a phone call from Lenny Wanaka, who... And I've never seen him say a harsh word to anyone. Mm-hmm. He is, you know, that avuncular, <laughs> easygoing. He calls me up. He's so angry. And he goes, I hear you're making a record with Rod Stewart. And I said, well, yeah. I said, and he said, what do you mean, well, yeah? He said, it's not your artist. You are the distribution of Warner Brothers Records. And how dare you take an A&R decision on one of our artists without talking to us? Wow. So I kind of thought, well, you're right, because I'd be the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I said, and he said, so what are you going to do? I said, if you don't want it and it's finished, we'll take the cost. We'll eat the cost. Sure. So he kind of reluctantly agreed. And I put the phone down, the phone rings, and it's Trevor Horn. He said, I've been thinking about this <laughs> track. It needs an orchestra. <laughs> Just after you said you absorbed the cost. Yeah, it needs an orchestra. And I thought, oh, God. And I said, do you mean strings? He said, no, it needs an orchestra. So I, I, I just went in for a penny, in for a pound, so I said, OK. <laughs> so he puts an orchestra on it, and they still haven't done final vocals. Rod's gone back to L.A. Trevor flies out to do the vocal. He rings me up and he said, when Rod's warmed up his voice, the whole track is in the wrong key. Oh, so Christ. he's now a semitone different from this. So I'm thinking, oh, God, this is, you know, <laughs> this is the terrible situation. So then I said, what can you do? And he said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to all kinds of technicians here. So then he called back and he said, we can move it up a semitone without ruining the strings. So they did. Yeah, yeah. And then Rod did it in his proper key, and everybody loved it, and it kind of put Rod back. He was on the cover of Rolling Stone after it, which he hadn't been on for years. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Suddenly he was cool. Yeah, yeah. And that the leads... The Tom Waits effect. And that leads me to a Tom Waits story, but I'm not sure we've got that. I do have to ask you about the whole debacle around Robert Mogado and Doug Morris. Tell us the story of how you 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 came within a whisker of becoming no, no, the no, head of. I, I, I was the head. Of you were for, for twenty four hours. <laughs> twenty four hours. The global head of Warner Brothers. <laughs> I was. Yeah, and the job. It was. It was a job I always wanted. I mean, I love Warner Brothers. I love. I love what they what they meant which was an artist haven yes. and very A&R-led, mm-hmm. whereas, you know, CBS Sony was business affairs-led, you know, quite cold decisions. It was much warmer at Warner Brothers. Mm. 
And then Mo Austin was this, you know, this great figure that ran it. And he and Bob Magado, who was overseeing the music division, fell out. And the Warners weren't doing it quite as well as he wanted. They weren't, he, he, Mo, I think, was too powerful. And so they fell out and Mo was gone and they had to replace him. And they, and they offered me the job. And which I, I said yes to and flew out to LA and met a few people. David Geffen had a house in the Bird Streets in, in, in West Hollywood. And he said, you know, if you need a house, there's a house here straight away so you can, you know, get started. So it was all kind of looking good. And they and then Bob and Gully said, I've just got to, you know, sort out a few bits of local politics. So I said, fine, let me know when you need me. And he said, because I want you to do a series of press conferences in New York. Mm-hmm. So I said, fine, you know, whenever you need me. And I was at the ASCAP Awards, I think, in London. And I got back at one o'clock. There was, I got a phone call from Bob McGarlo who said, we need you here tomorrow morning. <laughs> it's one o'clock in the morning. And he said, because we're going to announce it. So we're doing the press thing, we're going to announce it. So I didn't really go to bed, I had to find a hotel room, mm-hmm. which Rod Stewart's managers, you know, because I couldn't get a hotel room in New York. And he said, I've got a suite at the Carlisle, I'm not going to use, you have that. So I had a hotel, and I had to get the Concord. Mm-hmm. So I got the first Concord out, you know, and I'm flying out, and, and I said, oh, my goodness, to, to my now wife. And I said, what is going on? She said, it's your destiny. And so I got on this plane thing, and it's the job, the one job I've always mm-hmm. wanted, to run Warner Brothers Records properly from America. So I get to the hotel, and I get a phone call from Magado's assistant saying, Bob's got to deal with a few things. Can you just wait in the hotel room? Mm-hmm. So I'm waiting in the hotel room, and then I don't hear. So we go in from like 9 o'clock New York time, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, David Geffen rings me and said, what's going on? I said, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm waiting in this room. For, I, I don't know what's going on. He said, I hear you're out. <laughs> you know, I'm preparing for a press conference. So this is going to really, you know, trust Geffen to know before anyone else. <laughs> <laughs> He's not even, I think even there, it's like five o'clock in the morning or something. Yeah. Anyway, he just started DreamWorks. Yes. And he said, look, whatever happens... There's a job for you at, we- at DreamWorks. And he said, We're, you know, they hadn't opened yet. Right. And he said, you know, I'll, I, so don't get upset. You've got a job here. And they were all over the news when it was launched. So I kind of thought, well, that's nice. But I don't know what's going on. So after about, about one o'clock, I called Magado's office. And he said, um, I'm in a bit of a difficult situation. Doug Morris says it's him or you. You know, and Doug Morris at that time was was going to be head of the music division. And he said, Doug says it's him or you. And we can't, and I said, well, you can't give in to that. You're immediately, you know, weakened your whole position. And he said, I know I've got, you know, I've got an interest in this, but as an advisor to you, <laughs> when someone says it's him or, you know, it's him or me, against your decision, you can't let them win. And he said, well, you know, I've, I've, I've got to, and, you know, I'm really sorry. Wow. And I so know. I'm just left Jesus. at the Carlisle <laughs> with a job that I thought I'd had. 
and you know they they made arrangements for what happened in the UK. Yeah, yeah. you know all this had yeah, gone yeah, on yeah, in yeah, twenty four yeah. hours. It's astonishing story. And uh, yeah, and I've got to say, I think I'd have had a nervous breakdown, other than the fact that David Geffen said, you know that because that was the coolest label that was going to be, in, mm-hmm. you know, after Asylum and everything else, and Geffen Records. Mm-hmm. I think if I'd been left that, and then I came back. And they said, you know, Rob, of course you've got your own your own job. And so I I rang Dave and thanked him and said, look. And he said, well, why wouldn't you leave? And I said, my staff and my artists. Mm. You know, by that time I'd heard Enya and you know lots of mm-hmm. they simply read. We had lots of things that we were doing well with. And I said, you mm. know, I can't leave them. No. And that kind of made my relationship with David not quite as good as it as right. it used to be. But yeah, that's well, that situation. I remember the, that great big Vanity Fair story about yeah. this whole drama. And, I had and a gay, f- I had a gay friend because I remember I had Brad Pitt on the cover, and then there was the Brad Pitt sort of photo splash where he was kind of in in nothing but a pair of shorts, and a gay friend then said to you know I've got the Vanity Fair, I've got the Vanity Fair, and I kind of rang him a couple of days later and I said, well, what do you think? And he said, I, I can't get past the Brad Pitt picture. <laughs> <laughs> you hadn't even read the story. No. You were quite no. No. That's fantastic. Oh, dear. That is absolutely brilliant. We're going to have to have you back for a kind of part two because we, we, we don't have that much more time. We need, we need to um, Press on through move, a few other move on yeah. to, to the audio interview. And In I, fact, uh, it's quite a good way of ending this part is on the disaster of your 24-hour appointment. As- <laughs> yes. Yeah, when people say, you never were head of Warner Brothers, I said, yes, I was. <laughs> 24 hours. Well, you, your, your Warner's career did officially end in 1998, of course, which was, what, three three or so years later. Yeah. There's obviously more to talk yeah. about after, ended, after that. It ended with one of the biggest record of my career. <laughs> you will leave that bit out. Tell which us about. What? Tell us about it. Share believe. Share oh, believe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, extraordinary we, story. Of, we have we creation of believe. Is yes. Unbelievable. Yes. Kind of yeah. There's, there's quite a few things we're missing out. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us about Share. Tell us about that record because it was obviously it was a huge record. It was. Well, Share's manager I'd known. He was a friend of my brother's, and he was just the most wonderful person. And so he rings me and said, I can't get arrested. And we've been dropped by Geffen. I can't get arrested in the States. And if anyone can make a hit record with it, it's you. And, you know, Flash will get you everywhere. So, <laughs> so we talked a deal and I signed Cher to the UK company. And I thought, you know, I can, I can make hits with Cher, which, which I did. We, I got Trevor Horn in because we'd just done the Rod Stewart stuff. And I, so I got Trevor Horn to do the record. And we made a fantastic record. And it, it's, I, I don't know if you know, but on that record is a prefab Sprout song. Oh, I didn't which, know that. Which one? The Gunman. Okay. And I, I, I absolutely... It was, a, it was a demo at the time from Paddy. I, I love Paddy McAloon. As a creative talent, as a human being, he's yeah. one of the best people I've ever met. And I just kind of thought it would be great to share Cat and Paddy McAloon song. <laughs> and so it's the song she hates more than anything, I think. It's the track she hates more. Um, but it's wonderful. <laughs> and we did this, and, you know, I, 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 Walking in Memphis was a great song and hadn't been a hit. Yeah. 
So I kind of heard her singing that. And then I had another track called One by One. So we made this record, which is called It's a Man's World, because we did James Brown, because I always thought, how great to have that lyric sung by a woman, you know, by a strong woman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was that was the album. And we had two top ten singles. The album did well, but nothing really mm-hmm. to write home about. And then I had a meeting with Cher and, and, and Billy Samoth, the manager, who we called Bumper. And I said to her, all my gay, gay male friends, of which I have a lot, mm-hmm. love you. They've never mentioned your music once, but they love you. Why don't we make a record for them? Right. So, you know, because... And she said, what do you mean? A dance record? I said, yeah, a high-energy record. And, you know, just something that they can go, I love her and I love this, that mm-hmm. record. And she said, I'm not making a dance record. I tried that in the disco time and it was a disaster. Right. I'm not making a dance record. So I kind of knew I was right. <laughs> and so I kept on and kept on. And and then she, you know, we had phone calls and stuff. And she said, if you're going to carry on like this, I'm not talking to you. And she didn't talk to me for three months. And then she said, you know, I said, can we meet? And she was in LA, I was in London. So we decided to meet in New York. Mm-hmm. So I get to New York and in the hotel, I've got a message from the desk going, from chair I'm not coming I'm not making a dance record <laughs> so I'm thinking great and so I went and met with Junior Vasquez and right. Terry and I went to Tower Records and I bought Cher records and I said work out her key yes and then write me some hits and so Todd Terry did a great track right. Junior Vasquez did something and then she heard I was making the record <laughs> And at the same time, <laughs> I bet you're glad you asked for this story. Aren't you? <laughs> at the same time, I used to love hanging out in the A&R department. I had my office was on its own floor. But every time I wanted to hang out, the phone would ring or my fabulous assistant would say, you've still got to do this, this and this. I never got past a desk. Mm-hmm. And so this day I walked past a desk and went downstairs to the A&R department and Steve Allen, my friend down there, had his door open and there was a songwriter called Brian Higgins sitting there like this, sort of coyly in the corner. Steve was on the phone. And I, you know, I'd always had a rule, you, know, you never take a phone call unless it's from an artist. Mm-hmm. And he was on the phone call just like, and I just thought, no, this is terrible. So I said, Brian, how are you? And Brian had written for like Danny Minogue or something. Mm-hmm. And I just felt sorry for him. So I'm making a record with Cher. You know, have you got anything? So he said, I've got loads. And I went, <laughs> I don't want loads. Give me two. So he turns up the next day with a DAT, which, you know, you can't play in your car. <laughs> I, had, I had a DAT machine in my office. And uh, is there a voice comes in and say, that is a digital audio tape, which was... Um, <laughs> yeah. And That's the future of recording. And so, I, so I had a machine in my, in my house and, and, I, and on it was 16 tracks. And I went, oh, please. Mm-hmm. You know, I asked for two, I get 16, typical. So I completely forget about it. I take it home, and then one day I come home, and my wife is out, and it was a really hot summer's day. So I went up and laid on the bed, and I thought, well, I can listen to something. Now, the thing about that is you can't fast forward, and you can't pick tracks like a CD. So I put the dat on, and the first track happened, the second track, they were terrible. And they were a minute long. 
And I thought, because it's so weird, a minute long, but it made it easy. So get to track nine, it's a track called Believe. And it's the chorus of Believe, which we all know. Mm-hmm. I thought, God, I love this. And then track 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, rubbish. And uh, <laughs> so I go back and I, I ring him up and I said, I really like this song, Believe, but it's just a chorus. <clears throat> And he said, well, I kind of figure if you don't like the chorus, what's the point of finishing the song? And I went, and this is a person who's sort of grown up with Bob Dylan and Jamie yeah, yeah, Mitchell, yeah. and I'm thinking, please, you know, yeah. where is it? What am I doing? <laughs> so I said, well, finish the song. He said, yeah, yeah, I'll finish the song. And he finished the song. It was terrible. <laughs> and I went, Brian, you've <laughs> written this hit chorus, and then this terrible verse and middle eight and... And he said, well, you know, I'll give it another go. I said, no, no, you've had your chance. <laughs> you know, I'm not that person anymore. <laughs> um, <laughs> you've had your chance. So I, I was working with a guy, a, a writer, producer, manager called Brian Rawling, and we were doing a song that he'd written for the share thing or sent me for share. And I said, oh, have you got, you know, can you finish this off? You know, your writer's finished this off. So then they came back with a terrible verse, terrible middle eight, <laughs> and a great bridge to the chorus, <laughs> which is the famous Alton Tune part. You've got two pieces. I've got two pieces. <laughs> I've still got no verse. And I've got no middle eight. And no buy-in from the artist at this point. <laughs> yeah, the artist doesn't and the want artist to do it. the artist is not really talking to me. <laughs> <laughs> it's really going well. <laughs> She's not making it. Uh, but, you know, I, I know I've got, like, the bones of a hit. So I say to Brian, you know, what is right? I'm giving you a hit chorus. Why can't you write a verse? And, he's, and I said, no, you've had your chance. He said, well, I've got other writers. I said, OK, that's it. You can get, you can get some other writers on it. And then they wrote the verse, and I said, Great, I really love the verse, the middle eight still sucks. And he said, oh, Rob, please give us a break. I mean, it's a great song. And I said, there is, you know, it's just... And so I said, OK, OK. No matter how hard I try, you keep pushing me aside, and I can't break through. There's no talking to you. And I sent it to Cher. I said, you know you didn't think there were any songs in dance, but you will listen to this. And I've got to say, why I love Cher, and I do love Cher, is a lot of people, to make a point, someone who's like an icon like Cher, would have said, I hate it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even if they didn't. Yeah. Even if they didn't. She came back and said, I absolutely love it. She said, what do you want me to do? And I said, sing the fucking vocal. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so she flew over, <laughs> and, uh, and, she, and she did it. And in the morning she got up, she got up to do the vocal. Oh no, after she'd done the vocal. And Roachford was on this morning or morning yeah. TV. And he had a vocoder on his voice. And she went, so she, I love this. So you went to the studio and she went, I want it to sound like Roachford. And they said, well, that's a vocoder. And we don't have one. <laughs> he said, but I can give you an approximation. And he turns up the auto-tune to, to 10. Yes. To show what an auto-tune can do. Yeah, yeah. And she went, I love it, I love it. And he went, no, no, I'm only oh. just <laughs> showing you what he... He said, no, I love it. So I get a phone call saying that she's got this thing on her voice. And so I came down and I said, Cher, you know, your signature is your voice. Right. 
can we just dial it back again? And she said, anyone touches that over my dead body. And so um, someone was writing a book about number one records. And they said, so I'm writing this thing about how you put the auto-tune on. And I said, I've got to say, I created the song like Frankenstein, but I did not do the auto-tune. That was completely Cher. So it was, an, you know, I, I rang Cher when it was number one. And... You know, I was the little boy watching Ready, Steady, Go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. fifteen-year-old watching Ready, Steady, Go and thinking, I Got You, Babe, was the best record I've yeah, ever heard. Yeah, And I'm this little boy waiting for him to pick up the phone. She's thrilled. Then I called Brian to tell him we're number one. And he went, that's fantastic, and screamed, whooping, whooping, and I said, and the middle age still sucks. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great that's it's fantastic. a fantastic that's story fantastic. It's, a, it's a shaggy dog story it's, it's, it, it, all the things that could have rung the mm. phone could have rung mm. you know which it always did or my assistant said you've still got reply to so and so yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and I wouldn't have gone downstairs yeah if Steve hadn't picked up the phone he'd been the door closed meeting I wouldn't have seen Brian Higgins yeah if my wife hadn't gone out that evening I wouldn't, wouldn't have listened, listened to, to that. that yeah and the yeah. whole trajectory of popular music would be different <laughs> yes. I, I saw Cher the other day and she said Kanye West came up to me and he said he said how does it feel creating a whole yeah. you know yeah. genre of music because hip hop embraced auto-tune yeah to a ridiculous to, 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 to a good um, to a very bad extent <laughs> oh, no, a very bad extent <laughs> yes but and also it's so, so did like pop singers yeah, yeah. you know in the yeah. true sense yes. of just being able to put it in tune yeah but, but men's every vocal sound I, I love the fact that she was alert enough to what was happening with the sound of her voice with this machinery to mm. kind of instantly mm. say this, this is really this interesting I mean that, that's, that's an artist that's a creative you know, decision of hers. She's she? the greatest. Mm. I mean, I'm, she's funny. I'm so glad you say that because I've always adored her from a long <laughs> way away. Uh, and are you gay? No. <laughs> Should I be? Yeah, we are. On the share scale, on that point, you officially are now. Okay, yes, all right. Exactly. I, 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 I can take that. I, I, <laughs> I, I get my friends now. My gay friends. If I go somewhere and there's lots of gay people, they go, this is Rob. He made believe. <laughs> and it's like, I'm suddenly like this it's superpower. Great. I remember reading uh, Robbie Fulks, uh, who's an alt-country singer, was in uh, travelling endlessly in a van with his band. And that came on, and, he, and everyone was going, oh, turn that off, turn that off. And he said, no, this is a great, great song. And they all said, really? So he put it in the set that night, and then they kept doing it. And everyone came to realise it was a kind of country esque, except for the middle eight. Except, <laughs> yeah, I drop that. I drop that. If you listen to that record again, you'll see what I mean. Yeah. When we finished this, we must have listened. It basically just repeats a line, and you know, it's yeah. dreadful. But it's surrounded by brilliance, so yeah, we can get right. away with it. So how many writers were credited in the six. end? Six. Wow. Two plus two plus two. Yeah. And All on, on different the, percentages? It, it, it won the... Uh, no, they, it was an argument about percentages. <laughs> but I said Brian Higgins has got to get 50%. Right. Because of the because chorus. And, and the chorus, and the, he started the yeah, whole yeah, genesis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was that thing. Um, yeah. There was a bit of argument from the others, but, you know, in the end... The, they all made millions. Yes. <laughs> yes. Except me. <laughs> you, you, well, right, in right, Dick right, Clark or Alan Freed <laughs> sense, yeah. your name should be on the track. 
should really. Well, Pete Waterman. Because Pete, you know, Stock and Aiken wrote the song. Yeah, and he always put his name on it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but I, I get it, because he directed he the, them. He, yeah, yeah. He, it he, wouldn't have happened without him. He, he, orchest- he orchestrated yeah. their work, mm. and that's that's kind of what I did. But, yeah. you know, I, I wasn't a producer. I was the head of a record company, and it was not, you know, it's, I certainly not what I wanted to do. No, no. But I kind of felt when they won song, they all went up. And I got asked up as well. But when I was going, this is so and so. Meet Brian Higgins, and so you know, it's like they never met. <laughs> never, that's so. And I, I think it's the only song I've Frankenstein in my career. Yeah, it's great. That's fantastic. Thanks for talking to us about your amazing career, Rob really really been fascinating and I know we could talk for another two three hours but we do have to move on we to move on. the week's new audio interview what is it Mark? yeah it's Leon Russell being interviewed by Andy Gill in 1998 it's terrific it's, it's about an hour long but he goes right back to backing Jerry Lewis in Oklahoma moving to Los Angeles becoming one of what he in fact says they were never called at the time he rightly so the wrecking crew the piano player with the wrecking crew playing lots of Phil Spector sessions Playing on Birds, Mr. Tambourine Man, which of course the birds themselves didn't play on, except for Roger McGuinn, I think. Which ties in what, with what you were saying earlier, Rob, about the birds on Life. stage yeah. versus. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I've been for a while in the Shindig House band, Jack Good, which I, who I will talk about a little bit later as well. Delaney and Bonnie, Denny Cordell coming out, meeting Joe Cocker, starting the idea of Shelter Records. This is in the first clip, which is about putting together Mad Dogs and Englishmen for Joe Cocker. Joe had fired the Grease Band and he had 50 shows booked in the United States and he was going to cancel them. But he had fired his band for some reason and the Musicians Union told him that if he didn't play those shows they weren't going to let him work in the United States again. So he was kind of up against the wall a very short amount of time, four or five days before the first show. Uh, So he asked me, uh, actually Denny asked me to could I put something together so he could make those those dates? So I just trying to think of something that could be done rapidly. I just sat there and started dictating what what it should be, what the band should be. We should get a film crew, get news crews, and uh, get a plane. And so all of, somebody was writing it all down. A couple of days later, all that stuff was was there. And so uh, it was interesting. Worked well. Yeah, yeah, it's good. It's good. Once while traveling across the sky, this lovely planet's called mine. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you've got to put a band together in five days, and you just complicate it enormously uh, by know. adding a film so crew. I don't, it is extraordinary. Have you seen the film? Yeah, yeah, film? yeah. So recently, uh, I mean, I love that album. I mean, it's just absolutely one of my favourites, and. Um, but but it's very you know you can see Joe Cocker's in a really unhappy situation and him descending into what became basically five years of alcoholic gloom and sort, yeah, sort of yeah. dragged himself out of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, then he talks more about Shelter Records, about his old Tulsa buddy JJ Kale, what he calls the troubled soul of Willis Allen Ramsey. 
recording Freddie King's second time I saw Leon Russell. Freddie King was the support band at Rainbow, yeah. I guess, 72, 73. Then his first two solo albums, the first one with a very starry cast, recorded at Olympic here. Glyn Johns brought in George Harrison, Ringo yeah, Starr. Basically the Beatles so, and the Stones. The Beatles <laughs> yes, and the Stones, yes. basically. And he talks about, also about, about writing songs and about a song for you and the masquerade becoming standards. This is his next clip. This is about a song for you and Ray Charles. certain period of time I attempted to write standards uh, I was fascinated there was a guy that played with uh, Tower of Power played the baritone sax Doc he said to me he said I don't know how you do it he said I, I've had 12 number one records and nobody ever cuts my songs he said you have all these records out and hundreds of people cut your songs how do you do that so and I, I, I mean I never really thought of it to that extent but in the case of Song for You, I was trying to write a song that Ray Charles and Frank Sinatra both could sing, a blues song that had qualities that, uh, you know, that a standard lounge singer could sing. And, in fact, uh, my publishing guy took that to Ray Charles before my record came out, and his response was that he didn't like to do songs by people that sounded like him because he didn't want to be accused of stealing. So I was really pleased that uh, he cut it. It was about 23 years later he cut it on that album and had, had a hit with it. I've been so many places in my life and time I've sung a lot of songs I've made some bad rhymes That reminds me of Randy Newman's Lonely at the Top yeah. which he wrote for Frank Sinatra. <laughs> <For Frank's not. laughs> yes, yes. yes. And it's still going. Frank's not really had a sense of humour. Yes, yes. <laughs> that would have been one hell of a record. Yeah, yeah wouldn't it? It, it really would. Uh, uh, so I th- should mention that, that the reason we, we've added oh. this is because there's a, a new biography of Leon, probably the first biography of right. Leon Russell, coming out next week by Bill Yanovitz, who was the, the lead singer of Buffalo Tom, and it's called The Master of Space and Time's <laughs> Journey Through Rock and Roll History. And you've read some of it, haven't you? I've, read, I've, not had I've, I've got about a third of the way through. But really interesting, yeah. actually. Yeah, he's, I mean, it's a fascinating uh, sorry, well, story, To be it? a teenager and playing in Jerry Lee Lewis's yeah. band, for one thing. At 14. Then, um, but uh, also how... He was a huge stage act in America in, in the early 70s, playing big, big audiences, and then his career just cratered more or less overnight. Mm. Then he did some interesting stuff. He talks about it doing that really wonderful album with Willie Nelson, yeah. where he's playing on a, a Yamaha CP70 electric grand, which is the most distinctive piano noise on earth. Everyone hates it. And he makes it sound <laughs> and it, it works beautifully. Um, and he talks. He also, he also talks about the concept of Bangladesh that he was very involved in putting yes, together. Absolutely. You know, with, with the George. Did Leon mean anything to you, Rob? I loved him. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I just loved to say those. I mean, tightrope. I mean, just yeah. song after song. Yeah, yeah. Me and Baby Jane. Delta and, Lady. I mean, which was a hit for Joe Cocker. Yeah, yeah I, I prefer the ballads. You I did. Man, Man, Manhattan Island Serenade. Yeah. It's 
sensational, yeah. I think. Interesting singing voice. I mean, general, actually, close to Dr. John than anyone else. I love Dr. Of, John. Well, so yeah. as do we. I think he was clearly influenced by Dr. Um, John. Yeah. I, 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 I guess he probably didn't have naturally a good singing voice. So he had Compared to, to Mike Rabanak, the voice was yeah. not but also a he particularly had, he, he strong had, voice. He had to strangle it in order to give himself a sound mm. that probably if he sung in his natural voice, it probably wouldn't sound that interesting. Mm. Anyway, I, I was a big, big fan. Loved what he did with, with, with Mad Dogs and Englishmen. Love his first two solo albums. Actually, his first three. Khan is a really good record. Khan, I love. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the story of the Mad Dogs tour is hair raising. I mean, the the one bit of the book I have read because it was excerpted in Mojo is Bill Janowitz's account of the Mad Dogs tour, and it is just like breathtaking how how they got it together. I know. Mike John, one of our writers, wrote the New York Times. He told me that that. Mad Dogs at the Film Maurice was the best show he's ever seen in his life. And this is a guy who's seen everyone, you yeah. know. Yeah. Is that um, where they I mean, recorded the... Yeah, that, that's where the album's recorded, I think, yeah. I mean, it's clearly chaotic, but in the spirit of those times, it somehow worked, didn't it? Like like yeah. a lot of sort of things that happened at yeah. festivals, live events, where it's, it's a, just like, this is insane. Everyone's a, drug crazed, sleeping with each other. But, but it worked. Still made it. <laughs> yes. The band I saw... Yeah. Yes. <laughs> the, the band I saw at the Albert Hall was essentially a chunk of the, the, the Mad Dogs band, you right, know, yeah. that, that yeah. he, he kind of kept together. And of course, a huge influence on El- Elton John, which is why. Very big influence. Who did then sort of come, come back, back to the... Leon's. Well, I'm not going to say rescue, but he's. But I think he. Helped he wanted out. to pay tribute yes. to yeah. Leon, didn't he? This, so after this interview was recorded with, with Andy Gill from 1998, some, some years after that, Leon and Elton did an album together, yeah. which I, I don't know very well, no. but I remember seeing the pictures of. Leon at that point but, looked like something out of Lord of the Rings. Well, he always did. We just didn't know Lord of the Rings. A night in white he had, he had grey hair when I saw yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, right. with the white hair was tremendous, was, wasn't it? It yeah. really was. It was extraordinary. So, yeah, very pleased to listen to that interview and hear all this stuff. It, yeah, it's, 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 there's, there's lots of interesting yeah. stuff. And so far, the book's very good. Is it? Good, yeah. good, yeah. excellent, great. So, what have we got time Just, for? Yeah. Have we, we do need to pay tribute to some to, to some fallen Oh, that, let's, should we do that first? Yeah, yeah and I, I mean, how much time, Jasper, realistically, have we got? Minus None. 20 yeah, minutes? Minus 20 minutes. <laughs> minus yeah, 20 yeah. minutes. Okay, so, <laughs> so let's we, use but, those yeah. minus 20 yeah. minutes. Yeah. Yeah. So we did lose Wayne Shorter last week, and I would ask you guys just to, to say something about this extraordinary saxophonist and the co-founder of Weather Report. Sure, I mean, well, I mean, for me, it was those early Electric Miles albums, you know, In a Silent Way, Bitches Brew, which I just think of just fantastic records. And then he joins Weather Report, and it's, it's uh, you know, I was anti-jazz rock at that time because I'd been put off by the Mahavishnu Orchestra, who I briefly loved and then decided I absolutely despised them. That drugs wore off, didn't they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that trip, they've been on. <laughs> Four years later, <laughs> I, 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 um, He's very interesting. I mean, Richard Williams quoted Wayne Shorter telling Richard that he felt himself disappearing in Weather Report, mm. and he did because... The first two, three albums, he is the one of the most interesting solo voices. About four or five albums in, it's almost like he's not there. Mm. Very, very, it's very strange. And and yet he sort of accepted it. I, first of all, one thing, he's earning more money than he ever earned in his life. I mean, for a jazz musician, earning that sort of yeah. money was pretty serious stuff. But also it's kind of odd equanimity that he could just allow this, the massive ego of Joe Zawinul to sort of push him to one side but yeah. marvellous player but marvellous a marvellous player and fantastic composer as well I think it's it's really worth saying right. that he, he composed just a number of just 
eternal jazz standards. I yeah. mean, ESP, mm. Speak No Evil, Footprints, all of those are yeah, just, yeah. just wonderful pieces of music. And to combine that kind of composition with the improvisation that he did, I think he was he was a great. He's not, my, his tone isn't always my favourite, but as a musician all round, I think yeah, he's yeah. I huge. Mean, he, and also managed to cross over, you know, doing the jazz, yeah, yeah. fusion jazz rock stuff, but also playing on like Joni albums and, and doing all this stuff in yeah. in a way that that seemed totally natural he, and easygoing. He has a way with a sparse special. melody, which is mm, very yes. rare in jazz players. He can just play like four notes and they hang there and. Yeah. Worked beautifully. Yeah, Great very record nice. with his Milton Nascimento, Native Dancer, is a lovely, mm. lovely album. Yeah, and his and his playing on the Joni Mitchell records, especially the one she did with Vince Mendoza, the the string arrangements of yes. um, his his playing Gorgeous. is beautiful on that. She absolutely adored him. Yeah, I think it, I mean it's interesting that he he had this very open mind around weather. I, mean, I really do love weather report, even if you know it's clearly Zawinul dominated but uh, but when you hear mm. shorter playing with within that that funky cosmic sort of sound i, I think it's very very beautiful that funky cosmic sound <laughs> copyright by the Oscars. um and, and, got, and, quite, yes. and a thoroughly nice man by all accounts as by well. Accounts, I, mean, really lo- I yeah. read a really That's nice piece on NPR. Michelle Mercer, his his biographer, wrote a lovely tribute to him and mm. just tells this great story of like she's on a real deadline of getting the book done and he's quite discursive normally in their interviews. But he's got she's got like two weeks left and she needs to get some stuff nailed down and then he sort of starts going off on one and his wife goes, Wayne, she's on a deadline. She's got two weeks and then and then suddenly he just starts. You know, giving her exactly all the answers that she needs <laughs> in perfect recall, perfect, you know, it's just it, it's mm-hmm. just just very fun and, and yeah, big loss. Two figures that we've lost more recently in the last few days, Gary Rossington of Leonard Skinner and the great David Lindley. So we've got pieces pertaining to to Skinnerd and a lovely piece about David Lindley in which Stephen Rosen drops by Lindley's house in Claremont and there's all these sort of extraordinary, you know, old, old instruments around. I mean, many listeners will know Lindley from particularly his his association with Jackson Brown over the years. I mean, yeah. you, you, I'm sure, well, will I, know I, his work. I knew him from Terry Reid. You knew, right, right. Of I course mean, he's on the... Yes, of course. Before Jackson, he was with Terry Reid with Alan White on drums and Lee Miles from Argentina Turner yeah. on bass. Wow. And, uh, yeah, so I heard that sound... I booked Terry Reid when I was at Loughborough, mm. and that was the lineup. I think Alan White, Lee Miles, and David Lindley, and so that sound. That, I mean, even though it was a, a you know a pedal steel, not a pedal steel, so lap steel, steel, lap steel, yes. yes, that has been played by millions of people. You know, in in country music, but he made it sound like nothing else. Yes, and so that was. I mean, I saw Terry a few weeks ago. Did you? Just before David died. In fact, we were talking about that. That mm. lineup. I don't know if you've ever done a Terry Reid back pages, but his life story is, is extraordinary. Yes. But, you know, Lindley was a major part of that. In fact, he left Terry Reid 
to join Jackson. You're a Lindley fan, I think, right? Martin. Yeah, no, I yeah. really like his, yeah. his He had a great movie. sense of humour as well. well. You could think of his vocal on Stay. Yes. Yeah, on the yes. Live Jackson album. And his fiddle playing on cocaine it's, is, yeah, is it's, incredible it's, as well. He just added a personality to yeah. all the records he ever played on. Yeah. I mean, Terry Reed's River is, the, you know, is was when he was that was the album when he was working with terry yeah exactly but, yeah he just added another personality well, particularly added a real edge to i think a lot of jackson's mm. music which which you know some people would say is would even say might be a bit bland at times and then you've got these extraordinary things that Lindley is doing on on things like running on empty yes and and so you forth could, but i really think it just gi- it just gives gives it this this sort of raw kind of edge that i absolutely love he was a phenomenal player fantastic and i think the you know the tributes to him from everyone have been so fulsome because yeah. he was obviously hugely hugely liked yes yeah. real eccentric yeah a savant kind of figure yeah. as well mm. i think Gary Rossington, of course, uh, you know, uh, survived the crash. He, the, the only, he was the only remaining survivor, wasn't he? Yeah, but he's, he's one of the three who survived the plane yeah, crash. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and he was the co-writer on Sweet Home Alabama. Was he? Yeah, and Simple Man, not have, not Free Bird. That must have helped pay the rent over the years. It, it mm. may have done. Yeah, right. saw Skinner at uh, Nebworth. That was the only time I right. saw them. And they're just all these southern dudes with sort of hats. And <laughs> <laughs> um, that old great was just special. In Filmed at Capricorn headquarters. Yes, yes, it was. It was That's a kind of PR right. thing for Capricorn. Yes, was, um, yes. Had all those bands. Anyway, have we? So we now have even less time. Um, no, I, I mean, I, I just just a couple of things yeah. to mention that's gone. On is, is that last week we put in an interview with Ralph Hutter of Kraftwerk? Did I pronounce that? You I did a pretty good job. Yeah. German, German, <laughs> German correspondent. Which, which I just recommend you read. That everyone reads who's interested in Kraftwerk because I think it may be one of the best interviews I've ever, ever read with one of that band. I mean, because Tim Lott, who's a very good writer, has turned into a very good fiction writer, was the, the writer concerned. And they talk as equals about things like Sachlichkeit and uh, other critical... And, and what is that? Uh, <laughs> objectivity. 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 Um, uh, this week, I just have one quote. It's Jack Good being interviewed by Maureen Cleave for the Evening Standard 63 on seeing Tommy Steele. He says, I hadn't been so excited since I saw a match between Spurs and Arsenal. The greatest <laughs> thing since Olivier as Hotspur. I thought to myself, clearly this is the life. And it's, I love it. It's a Tommy Steele. <laughs> I love the Spurs hot spurs. It's another <laughs> great Maureen Cleave interview. As you know, I'm a massive fan yeah, of Maureen Cleave. Did such you know Maureen? No. no. Um, she, uh, uh, and she's just very good at getting really interesting stuff out of people and then putting it in the pages of the Evening Standard. Mm. And that's really something. When, yeah. I, when anyone claims that American men invented music journalism in 1966, I go, fuck off, read Maureen Cleave in 1963. <laughs> she was a, I'm a Nick Tosh's fan. Oh, oh well, yeah. yes. Yeah, though, actually, the awful thing about Nick Tosh's stuff, I mean, he's just brilliant, but sometimes you really sing, and it, the... the, the it just makes you slightly cringe in terms of the way he talks yeah, about women. women. Well, him and a lot of writers. Yeah, there. but he's a fantastic writer. Incredible. Um, Martin, the Dean Martin. I love his Sunny Liston, his Sunny Liston book, Night Train. I don't know. It's that. Fantastic. It's I think really it, the Dino book, Dean Martin, yes, yeah. is. is 
is a must read. Yeah. Also, I mean, Nick Tosh has just hung out with Jerry Lewis in a way most people simply couldn't have, you know. The, the, yes. and, anyway, survive. And, and survive. And survive. <laughs> Live to tell the yes. tale. Yeah, it's a great uh, book. I think, that's, that's, that's I think that brings co- us to... Call it a day. It does bring us to a close. So, Can I just ask one question, Rob? Because we've talked about these all these monstrous worldwide hits. What <laughs> artists did you work with that didn't that that it, it never happened for who you thought could have been big? Well, I just I can come back to Terry Reid. There's mm. a thing that happens. I you know I have to tell my ne- nephew this, but it hasn't happened to him yet. <laughs> when you have phenomenal success with something you've done mostly on your own, which I did with Enya, yeah, he did with Adele. After Enya sold 13 million records for a record no one ever saw coming, you have this power that I can do anything I want. Anything I touch will turn to gold. Mm -hmm. And I've seen it in lots of other people, but I've had it in myself. And I thought, I love Terry Reid, and he's never had the success he deserved. So I'm going to make a record with Terry Reid, and it's going to be phenomenal. (laughs) And I made the record, it didn't work, and I suddenly came back down to earth and it was something it was a moment i think everyone who has a phenomenal Uh, success needs to have and i'm still waiting for jonathan to have it but the the terry reed album called the river is i'm so proud of it as Mm. a record and it is that one time dinner with chris blackwell we spent the whole dinner talking about our failures (laughs) <laughs> you know, it started, it started with Jess Roden. Yeah, Jess Roden, yes, yeah, absolutely. So we well, it's, it's interesting you mention this because Rob Palmer, in a way, was the, one of those guys who did make it because mm. they're not dissimilar singers. I mean, no, whenever no, Terry Reid, Robert Palmer, they're of that sort of British blue eyed soul, soul sort of thing. Yeah. thing. Yeah. And Robert Palmer made it, and all the Jess Rodens, Terry Reeds. I thought Jess Roden because I, I saw him, he used to be in a band called Shakedown Sounds yeah, in 65. Yeah. And I always thought, now this is because he had what Rod Stewart had and what Stevie Winwood had. He had he had all of that yeah. wrapped up in one, but, and he yeah. looked great yeah. in the mod era. He looked yeah. fabulous. Yeah. And, I'd, and that's what started me and Chris talking about failures. Right. But Terry, Helicopter Girls, another one Ooh. that I thought was a terrific record. And I couldn't talk for three days when it didn't chart in the album charts. Yeah. And I, that's one of the reasons I retired. Ah. I thought the highs don't get any higher. Yeah, yeah. And the lows are getting far lower. Oh, <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. okay. Yeah. <laughs> On that happy note. <laughs> happy... <laughs> okay, so it just remains for me to say do visit Rock's Back Pages where subscribers can read over 50,000 articles and listen to over 800 audio interviews with people like Leon Russell. Check to see if your local library subscribes to RBP. If not, maybe suggest they take a free trial of the world's largest archive of music journalism. And thank you, Rob Dickens, for joining us today for what's been a really, really entertaining episode. Thank you. It's been great fun. Thank you. Bye. Bye. That concludes episode 148 of the Rock Track Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Rob Dickens the host of Barney Hoskins, Mark Pringle and Martin Collier, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Murison-Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at rocksbackpages.com.
We didn't cover much, but <laughs> <laughs> we skimmed the surface. Nice. But then that's you your fault for being in the business. So, like, you know, sex so pistols, Malcolm McLaren. Yeah. Well, not even mentioned. Bank uh, Ellis. Well, we would have been here literally for four hours. And yeah.